reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 to 6. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. After six, day, six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's set up three shelters, one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. When you finish, please conclude by saying, Hear the word. Oh, (laughs) I know I've been uh, saying this over and over again the last couple of weeks, but uh, like I say, when you stay up and you're awake at four o'clock in the morning, you become firmly convinced of things and convicted of the need for the church and for our church to focus on conversion and discipleship. And an important verse which stands out in this regard is from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. There we go. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now the obvious conclusion being that if we believe God exists, we will want to be friends of Jesus, so we place our faith in him. We live a Christian lifestyle and we build each other up to maturity. In the end and along the way, we will experience rewards and blessings. Now, all of that I have explained, and hopefully you understand what is at stake enough that you have chosen to become a friend of Jesus yourself. But maybe you've noticed the problematic clause in this verse that I've not yet dealt with, which begs the question, what does it mean to please God? I mean, is the life of discipleship merely about keeping God happy so that he does not send down fire to punish us? That is not at all a compelling vision of Christian faith and practice. In my humble opinion, it is a grave error to understand this verse as a transaction. That if I do this, then God will be satisfied which is what the Old Testament sacrificial system and theologies of penal substitutionary atonement encourage. Notice the writer of the letters, the letter to the Hebrews did not use the word satisfied, but wrote pleased. This is an an emotional word inviting us to understand this verse as describing a relationship 
When we draw near to God in trust, in worship, in petition, etc., he responds with his own positive emotion, and we experience the promised blessings and rewards. The best illustration is that of an infant who wanders away, but continues to look back to ensure their parent is watching. See, an infant will only explore if he feels comfortably convinced that his parent is watching and is supportive. This secure attachment provides safety and stability so that the infant feels free to explore and to learn. Even more so, when an infant does something, she holds it up to her parent for verification and for validation. The parent's pleasure affirms the child, who thus gains confidence to apply herself to further tasks with purpose and creativity. This is what it means for an infant to have a secure attachment with his or her parents. An insecure attachment, when all of that goes wrong, an insecure attachment has observable negative consequences, particularly in one's relationships throughout their lifespan. And this explains why my son and I have a very difficult relationship. Because every time he tries to show off to me with his basketball prowess, he fails to make the basket. (laughs) And I'm stuck between affirming him for screwing up and encouraging him to keep trying. And it is very hard. Where am I? Ah, So a secure attachment to one's mother and father is absolutely essential to the healthy, lifelong development of a child into productive and proactive adulthood. And our spirituality can be understood as an attachment to God. Now, many Christians are proud to quote Eric Little's most famous lines from the 1981 movie Chariots of Fire. The the character said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Here is the actual Eric Liddell running with obvious pleasure on his face. See, God did make Eric Liddell fast, and he did run for God's glory, but those words were not spoken by the Olympian who later became a missionary to China. They were written by Colin Welland and put in the voice of Liddell, as played by actor Ian Charlson. While they're not Little's words directly, they do represent the sediment, the sentiment and experience perfectly. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. When we come to understand and believe that God exists, we will want to be in a right and full relationship with our Heavenly Father. I mean, Jesus did tell us to pray in this way, our Father in heaven. So we will want to draw near to him and to feel his pleasure, which is a blessing and reward that far surpasses anything this fallen world can offer. How then do we draw near to God? How do we feel his pleasure? Well, a good place to start always is by following Jesus' example. Jesus said, The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. 
This was certainly true of Jesus' own life. Streams of living water flowed from deep within him because he exemplified a prayer-filled life. And because of this, Jesus enjoyed communion with God the Father, such that he knew the Father's thoughts and feelings, even thinking and feeling them himself. In Jesus' own words, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Later, I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Can you see what's going on there? Because of Jesus' prayer-filled life, he had such a deep communion with God that he knew God's thoughts, he knew God's feelings, and he committed himself to doing the things that God does. He came to this understanding and that experience because prayer was an habitual practice for Jesus. He prayed as he was being baptized. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized as he was praying, heaven opened. Jesus prayed before choosing his core 12 disciples. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them whom he also named, named apostles. He could make that choice because he had prayed first. After an exhausting evening of ministry, Jesus got up early the next day to pray. We read very early in the morning while it was still dark, he got up, went out and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. So he had worked hard. He was tired and exhausted. So he went and he prayed. When Jesus took his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, to pray with him, it led to his being transfigured in their presence. We read Jesus took along Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. When the disciples failed in exercising a demon from a sick, sick child, Jesus instructed them, this kind come out by nothing but prayer. Jesus' anger was excited when he saw the temple being misused and the people abused. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Because they witnessed Jesus' prayer life firsthand, the disciples asked him how to pray. He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished uh, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples and teach them. He did the most intense and far reaching of his prayers was recorded for posterity. When Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room on the night of his betrayal, Jesus prayed for himself, for his disciples and for all believers. We read, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. John 17, Jesus' prayer for everybody. And the most intimate and painful of Jesus' prayers was also recorded. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
So in this cursory summer, uh, cursory uh, look at certain scriptures, we can see that Jesus lived and he worked and he prayed. He retreated to quiet and isolated places for prayer. Jesus prayed that he might hear God the Father and do what the Father said and to do what the Father did. Jesus prayed. And even this quick glance should stir within the heart of his friends a hunger for a similarly deep, rich, and full relationship with God the Father. A longing for a steadfast faith, a boundless hope, and an undying love. Well, Jesus points the way to that experience. Now, starting today, we're going to explore a balanced vision for a Christian life based on six historical movements of the Christian church. Seeking to follow Jesus' way to a prayerful life has created within the church a contemplative tradition. The first historical movement that I want to describe for you. And for this sermon series, I'm relying on the writings of Richard Foster, most especially his book, Streams of Living Water, Essential Practices from the Six Great Traditions of Christian Faith. Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth, is also a classic resource on spiritual disciplines, as is Adele Auberg Calhoun's Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, Practices That Transform Us. So from its earliest days, there have been many individuals and movements within the church that have sought to practice prayer, solitude, and contemplation for a fuller and more satisfying spiritual experience. They sought an encounter with God. And in the pages of the Bible, we find the example of the psalmists who meditated on God's character and works. The example of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who cherished all things in her heart. Elijah, the prophet, kept vigil during earthquake, wind, and fire. Mary of Bethany chose to sit at Jesus' feet. And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, enjoyed a deep intimacy and abiding love through prayerful meditation and discerning contemplation, as evidenced by his gospel, his letters, and revelation. So within the pages of scriptures, we see these examples of prayer-filled lives. And even in the pages of history, we find the example of saints who followed the contemplative tradition. Claire of Assisi, you may have heard of before. She left home and joined the Franciscans after hearing Francis of Assisi's uh, message of peace and penance. Moving to the first church that Francis restored at San Damiano, Claire gave her attention to the interior life of prayer and devotion. We have also Benedict of Nursia, who founded the Benedictine movement at Monte Cassino in Italy, establishing a model for monastic communal life. His rule gathered roving prophets into communities of loving and nurturing accountability. He provided connectedness to the past with his rule of spiritual reading simple accountability with his rule of stability and rootedness to common life with his rule of daily manual labor. Monasteries following the Benedictine way became the norm for Western monasticism. Then we have brother Lawrence, who you've heard me mention before. 
He left the French army and civil service to work as a cook in a Carmelite community. He wrote in his classic, The Practice of the Presence of God, and I quote, The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were at the blessed sacrament. Brother Lawrence encouraged communion with God, even as one works at menial tasks. Then you have Catherine of Siena, who became a Dominican lay sister at the age of 16. Spending her early years in the solitude of her home, Catherine later embarked on a more public life by working for church reform, caring for the poor, the sick and imprisoned. And she served as an ambassador to popes and to other church leaders working for reconciliation. All of those efforts were undergirded by solitude and contemplation. And her book, The Dialogue, is a spiritual testament to this best-known Italian mystic of her time. Then there's Cuthbert, who started life as a shepherd, but at age 15, he had a religious experience that changed his life's direction. He adopted the religious life, preaching, teaching, giving money to the poor, and overseeing his diocese with compassion and talent. Yet at the heart of his ministry was contemplation and prayer. And then finally, let me draw your attention to Euthymius the Great, who spent 68 of his 95 years in the desert practicing solitude. At first, he spent whole nights in prayer on a mountain close to a monastery that he supervised. Then he joined a monastery near Jerusalem, making and selling baskets to support himself and the poor. He was known for performing miracles, converting Arabs, and helping the needy. And there are many more examples of spiritual giants and normal saints who devoted themselves to prayer and to contemplation in many and varied ways. The overflow of their prayer-filled lives was loving action for their neighbors and changing the systems around them. Now, when I state that individuals and movements within the contemplative tradition practiced a prayer-filled life in their times and places, I do not want to fill your imagination with a myopic vision of prayer. See, prayer within the contemplative tradition is less about close your eyes and bow your head, and it's more about drawing near to God and seeking communion. It is less about telling God what he already knows you need and then waiting to see what happens. It is more about hearing him share his heart and his will with you so that your heart and your will joins with his. You can learn to partner with our creator for a better way forward together. You see, the prayer-filled life is a steady gaze with the soul upon the God who loves us. It begins with love. With time and experience, you will sense a delicate but deepening love for God that feels more like a gift than an achievement. It comes little by little, and it will fluctuate in its intensity from high to low, hot to cold, but in time, that sense of your love for God and his love for you will grow deeper, stronger, and more steady. 
The prayer-filled life experiences the peace that passes all understanding. This quiet rest and firmness of your life's orientation is not due to the absence of conflict or worry. It persists even with a multitude of distractions. In time, the quiet way of prayer wins over the chatter of a noisy heart. The prayer-filled life experiences also delight. There is pleasure, there is friendship, joy, and even playfulness in communion with God. Yet that delight fluctuates with yearning, with experiences of emptiness. One searches and does not always find. This can feel like darkness or dryness. But in those moments, solitude is your friend. Where delight is a feasting, it is tempered by the fasting of yearning. And both are needed for the growth of the soul. The prayer-filled life also experiences fire, where love becomes passion. Our disobedience or our neglect, it becomes painful to us. You will both feel and welcome the purifying of God's love, burning out the stubbornness, the hate, the pride, and other sin that you harbor, because you will want love to blossom. The prayer-filled life also experiences wisdom. This is knowing God himself and his will, not just about him. It is knowing him, knowing his glory. This is also a sense of being known. Prayer turns into a deep two-way communication and also an opportunity to listen in on and participate in the love shared within the Trinity. The prayer-filled life also experiences transformation. Communing with God will gradually and slowly capture your heart and your will, your mind and imagination and your passions, resulting in the conforming of your personality into the likeness of Christ. With prayer, you will take on the habits, feelings, hopes, faith, and love that Jesus modeled for us. To follow the contemplative tradition within the history of the church is to practice a prayer-filled life. While there are specific practices that I can give you that have been tested and passed on by saints, here are just some general ways to get you started in expanding your prayer. The first is to experiment with variety in venues for solitude. Take a walk. It's okay. Take a walk. Limit your speaking for one day to listen and to learn about yourself and others. You can sit in a busy location and watch carefully, reflecting on what you see, blessing those who pass. You can take a one, a three, or even a seven-day silent retreat. Or you can go into the city for a social justice experience. Another way to experiment is to wake up at 2 a.m., light a candle to symbolize Christ's presence, and listen to the sounds of the night. It's one thing to have your prayer corner with your prayer cushions where you fall asleep in the middle of your prayer. But get some variety in your life. Go places and do things where you can sit and be still with God. In solitude with him. Experiment with some variety for solitude. 
There's also praying the scriptures. Now, this is to set aside your normal Bible reading schedule. See, often we can, you know, I've got to read this chapter. I've got to get it and I'm going to smash it out and finish that Bible reading. But this way of praying the scriptures is to let go of that need to finish to set aside the devotional and to turn your heart and your mind and your spirit toward God in your reading. So read slowly, read quietly, read prayerfully, pausing at any word or phrase where you feel the spirit's nudge, because maybe the spirit is drawing your attention to something you need to learn. You may come across a verse like Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, where we read, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Come across a phrase like that and stop. That is worth pausing over, meditating on. Stop and wait at a verse like that, surrendered and still. Let the Spirit expose your weakness, the reasons why you lack strength. You may move to confession You may move to a longing for strength that is not your own nor dependent on uncertain circumstances. Begin praying in that moment. Lord, help me enter your joy. Forgive my pursuing joy in things that never fully satisfy food or gossip or frivolous things. Let me soak in your joy. And in the midst of such prayer, instruction from the spirit may come. Indeed, we heard something of that yesterday, didn't we? During the breakfast, our special guest speaker had been praying and the spirit spoke to her a word to give to us. Well, at least to the women anyway. The spirit does that. But are we listening? We can't listen if we're chattering in here. So we got to be quiet. Pause. Soak in God's joy. You might be moved to song. You might be moved to dance. Who knows? But that's what can happen when we pray the scriptures, take time and uh, give attention to those words. And finally, let me encourage you to take time for holy leisure. Resist the urge to always be getting ahead. There's always somewhere we want to go and something we want to do so that we can get a raise or get the window seat in our office or whatever. But set aside the need to always get ahead. Take a nap. Spend an hour visiting a neighbor with no agenda at all. Watch the sun go down. Take a walk, not for exercise, but for the sheer joy of walking. Stop praying to listen instead. Sit in silence, doing nothing, having nothing, needing nothing. Waste time for God. The ideas are endless. There are all sorts of ways we can expand our prayer life. That's not to suggest anything that you're doing right now is wrong. But if you've been doing that for a long time, maybe you need some variety. Try something else. Go somewhere else. Do it a different way. There are all sorts of possibilities. Our prayer life does not need to be routine. It does not need to be boring. We should not fall asleep in the midst of it. Although if you do, sometimes it's okay. Do you know what I mean? Experiment, explore, pray. The contemplative tradition continuously draws us into love for God, reminding us that the Christian life is less like a rule book 
and more like falling in love. It stresses the value of silence, solitude, and prayer as ways we engage with God's presence. Whether we take a silent walk in the early morning, ride the bus to work, wash dishes while the kids nap, or even take a nap ourselves. Follow Jesus' example and the example of the saints that have gone before us in the contemplative tradition, that the Holy Spirit might make us more like Christ to will and to act in accordance with God's will for us. For it was Jesus who said, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. The prayer-filled life of the contemplative tradition, it overflows. Amen.